They, they carried it off. I didn't know if they would be able to pull it off, the, the reenactment. Morgan said, I don't know if you want to do that. You're asking for a lot of trouble if you get the kids to reenact it. But they, they pulled it off. I can wrangle some kids, can I? Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at this, this row of, of young adults here, too, and I can't help but notice that you got some sun at softball practice yesterday. Is that right? Yeah? Okay, good. Good. I'm glad you guys are out there practicing. That's great. We need that. That's, we want to bring home the... The trophy here. We're talking about triumph today, so come on, guys. Let's let's go step it up our softball team here. Today is an important day. Talking about triumph and the life of uh, it's an important time in the, the season of the church because it's Holy Week. I'm gonna take a break from preaching through the the text we've been reading uh, over, and I know I preached from Deuteronomy when we were already out of Deuteronomy, long out of Deuteronomy. But uh, for the next two weeks. This is Easter, this is Holy Week, so I'm going to preach on the triumphal entry and on, on the resurrection of Christ next week, which I can't wait to do that. And then we're going to close out April in First and Second Samuel, one of my favorite passages, uh, 2 Samuel 7, uh, the last week of April. And then for the month of May, we're going to dwell in the rich, rich Gospel of John together. I can't wait to spend May in the Gospel of John with you all as we read through that uh, together as a congregation. So today, let me start by asking you a question then. We're talking about triumph here. How many of you would describe yourselves as competitive? How many of you would describe yourself as someone who likes to win? I, I hear Jim, Stein, uh, Jim Steinhouse and uh, Randy Gentry talk about their golf game. Those guys are pretty competitive. There's a lot of smack that they talk back and forth there. I'm definitely in that category as well. My, my son, who's seven, whenever we play a game or a sport or a video game or something, he always says, Dad, can you take it easy on me? And my answer is always, no. <laughs> it's good for you. No, I'm not going to take it easy on you. What are you thinking? I like to compete at everything. My, my dad, you know, even when he takes me to play golf, you know, I, I want to beat him. And my mom always gives me grief about it when we come back and she says, who won? And, and if I beat him, she says, oh, he paid for it. You need to let him win. He, uh, he took you out. Our, our staff bracket challenge got a little heated as we were debating the scores. We didn't use an app. You know, we're kind of old school uh, here, and we had paper brackets in the, the, the workroom where we eat our lunches, and Richard was tallying up the, the point totals, and I was arguing about, now wait a minute, you get more points for this round or that one? And it, it, Apparently Ron's bracket won, but in parentheses, we know that Sandra filled that out, so congratulations. <laughs> congratulations, Sandra. Well done. You know, it gets really interesting in a marriage as well when you marry someone who's also as competitive as you are. Morgan and I like to race at everything. When we're walking to the car sometimes, she'll just say, beat you to the car and, and take off running. What? I got to beat her. We, we like to race about uh, who gets ready first in the morning. And, and I'd like to say it's always me, but it's not always me. And if, if it's ever not me, she lets me know that she beat me getting ready. And you never want to play card games uh, against Morgan because she, uh, you know, it's always those sweet, quiet ones you got to watch out for, isn't it? They're the ones that, they're the ones that are really competitive. That's, that's my wife for sure. And a, a few years ago, many years ago, early in our marriage, I made the mistake of, um, we, we had a youth winter retreat and, and my beautiful young bride said she would go and she would chaperone and I asked her to lead one of the teams, uh, and we had this competition that went on, you know how y'all do on these retreats, you had a competition the whole two days, because I'm competitive, and, and our youth like to compete as well, so we had this, this you know, weekend-long competition, 
And I, of course, as the youth minister, was in charge of assigning point values on different events and different things that the teams earn points for. And as my wife was leading one team and I was assigning points for all the teams, um, it, it got interesting. And I will never make that mistake again of putting us in that situation. So what is it about competition that we like? What is it about competition that appeals to us, that, that makes us competitive? Is it simply a way for us to you know, feed our egos? Is it a, a sense of validation that we long for, that we can prove our, our might or our strength? Or is it uh, the thrill of triumph? Have you ever experienced the, the thrill of triumph? I'll never forget when I was a, a sophomore in, in high school at Franklin High, just down the road here, about 18 miles that way on Hillsborough Road. Um, our, our team had made it high school basketball. Richard and I both love high school basketball. Our, our varsity boys team had made it to the regional finals of the, uh, the tournament. It was before they, they went to Murfreesboro for the, the state uh, championship. And we were hosting our arch rival, Brentwood. Uh, Brentwood High School had made it to the, the regional finals. And, we were hosting them, and uh, they would split the regular season one and one, so the teams were very evenly matched. We had a superstar, Jay Lannon. He was six foot seven, this kind of lanky guy, but he was real dominant inside, but he could also shoot the three from outside. And Brentwood had BJ Prophet. He was one of the you know most prolific scorers in the state at that time. And the gym was packed, and it was hot, you know, and smelly. And I, I love that feeling when the little high school gyms are just packed out full of people. And was, the game was back and forth, lead changes back and forth the whole game, and, and BJ and Trey, I mean BJ, not Trey, BJ and Jay were, were just uh, trading uh, shots back and forth, and, and of course it, it came down to the wire, and in the closing seconds, Franklin was behind, and, and Jay dunked an alley-oop from this little point guard to tie it at the buzzer, to send it into overtime. We were going nuts. And then in overtime, it was, it was just an insanely... Uh, competitive and, and, and Brentwood was down by three. We thought we had it in the bag and then BJ hit a three from the corner. I don't know how he got open and tied it. Double overtime. And, and double overtime, of course, we're just screaming. Everybody's tired. The players are tired. Fans are tired. Coaches are tired. And again, Franklin is down by one uh, as the closing seconds and, and Jay gets a, a double screen. Coach calls timeout and he goes off these two screens, gets the ball, lays in a, a feathery jump shot at the buzzer to win it. We went nuts. We rushed the court. We all came flying out on the court. They had security guards, and we were like, no way, we're just going. And we just all stormed the court. We grabbed Jay. We put him on our shoulders. And I was this little skinny 15-year-old, and I really wasn't able to you know, fend for myself in this mix, but I didn't care because it was just pure joy, just pure triumph, pure joy that we had beaten Brentwood, our rivals, and we were going to the, to the finals. It was just an incredible feeling of triumph. You ever experienced triumph like that? We're going to talk about triumph today. Palm Sunday is a day that's been celebrated for 2,000 years by all kinds of Christians all around the world, talking about this text that happens to be in all four Gospels, the text that we know as the triumphal entry. And gathering what we can from these accounts in the, the four Gospels, that Jesus was returning to Jerusalem, the, the capital city of, of the Jews, on the Sunday before he was crucified, and these crowds had heard that, that this prophet, this great prophet, was coming into the city, and they all rushed out to meet him to welcome the triumphant king. They spread their cloaks and their palm branches on the road into the city. They had come out to meet him, and they praised him 
as their Messiah, as the promised Savior for whom they had been waiting, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God save us. You can save us. So let's read this account together in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. This is the, uh, the event of the triumphal entry, and uh, it's an important text for us to know. Let's stand this morning in honor of God's word as we read this text together. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You may be seated. The word of God for the people of God. Why is this a triumph? We read this triumphal entry passage. There's some things that we notice that sound triumphant and some other things that don't sound quite so triumphant. Was this a, a vindication for Jesus? The, the last few uh, you know, months before this, there had been building uh, dissension, building conspiracy against him by the Jewish officials, and now he's coming into Jerusalem in glory. Well, yeah, I'm sure that was part of it. Was this a prophecy fulfilled? Yes. Zephaniah 9. Was Jesus coming into Jerusalem to rule? Yes, in a way. This, this was a triumph, but it's not a triumph in the way that the crowds expected it to be a triumph. You see, their, their feeble, human, limited minds couldn't conceive of the, the greatness of the magnitude of the victory that was about to be won a week later. Jesus Christ riding into Jerusalem was only the beginning of the ultimate triumph over all evil in the cosmos. Let's look at the context of this story before we go any further, okay? Jesus, you know, had his ministry for three years, and now he's coming to the end of this ministry. And he'd spent a lot of his time up in the northern part of Israel called Galilee, where his hometown was, Nazareth. He'd been teaching his disciples and the crowds in Nazareth. And then we, we read in the Gospels that there, there came this turning point at the end of his ministry when the time was right. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 is one of my favorite verses. At the end of, of Jesus' ministry, he, he was up in the north and, and something clicked. It was time for him to go south to Jerusalem one last time. This verse says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You know, the original Greek word that's, that's translated in English here is set, set his face, is esterisin. And it's, it's so much a stronger word than just set. 
It's where we get the word established from. The word in, in the NIV is translated as resolutely set, which still doesn't quite do it justice. Eugene Peterson gets closer in, in the message when he says, he gathered up his courage and steeled himself for the journey to Jerusalem. But all of these really fall short of, of how strong this verb is in Greek. The, the lexicon says that esterisin means setting up something so that it remains immovable. It's about resolve. Jesus turned his face toward his ultimate destiny in Jerusalem, knowing full well what awaited him there, and nothing would move him from that course. Nothing would deter him. Is this stubbornness? I mean, I can get an idea in my head and really just get stubborn about it. Ask Morgan, she'll tell you. <laughs> I don't think this is stubbornness, though. This is something deeper. When Jesus set his face to the cross at Calvary, it was a complete abandonment to the will of God. It was a resolve to completely fulfill what God had for him to do. Jesus recognizes that he's here on this planet to do the will of the Father. That's why he was sent here. And he's 100% committed to doing that will, come what may. You know, a few days later, after the, the, the Passover meal with his disciples, he's praying in the garden, and he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus completes this long journey to Jerusalem with his disciples, and he's ready to enter the city for what he knows will be his last time on this earth, in this age. He's spent the last few days in the wilderness outside Jerusalem hiding because the Sanhedrin, the Jewish officials, had issued a decree that if Jesus was found, to arrest him immediately. Why were they so upset over Jesus? Because he had just done the greatest miracle in the Bible. He had, ra he had raised Lazarus from the dead just before this. You know, Lazarus is, is a big friend of Jesus. He and his sisters, Mary and Martha, are very close to Jesus as buddies. They're all friends. And when he hears that Lazarus has died, he comes immediately and he weeps with his friends. And then he calls to Lazarus, come out. And Martha freaks out. Remember, Martha says, whoa, 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 he's been dead for four days. In the King James, it says, he stinketh. There's a stench. He's been dead for four days, Jesus. I don't think you want to do that. And, of course, Lazarus comes out of the tomb, obeying the sovereign will of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and he's resurrected. This is a big deal because, you know, this town they lived in is called Bethany. And Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem. It's on the back of the Mount of Olives, just outside the city of Jerusalem. This is, this is Jewish country, okay? They're in the, the shadow of the temple. They can, they can see the holy city of Jerusalem. And here this prophet is who performs the greatest miracle of all time in Jerusalem's backyard. So the Jewish officials are freaking out. They're, they're starting to say, we can't have this. Everybody's flocking to this prophet now, and we're losing our grip on power and control. So many of the Jews became believers that they realized a revolution was happening. So they, they waited around the temple debating whether or not Jesus would actually have the courage to show up in their city for the, the Jewish festival of Passover, which was about to occur. And this brings us to the triumphal entry. The city's packed with all these Jewish pilgrims who have come up to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. 
And rumors begin to seep out that Jesus, the one who raises the dead, is coming to the city. Can you imagine the excitement they must felt? Verse 13 here says they rushed out to meet him. You know, I wasn't alive during the, the British invasion of the 1960s, but I'm a big Beatles fan. And I've seen the, the videos and the pictures of, of the girls just screaming and fainting and, and passing out, right, just to get a glimpse of one of the Beatles as their plane landed in New York City in 1963. I imagine that's the kind of fervor, the kind of, 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 of craziness that is happening about seeing their king arrive. It's like Jesus mania, not Beatle mania. Everybody's so excited because for the last 400 years, they had been dominated by a foreign power. They haven't heard from God in 400 years since Malachi. He was the last prophet to give them a word. And now the people of God were saying, where have you been? It was a dark time in the life of God's people. They'd been oppressed by a pagan people who constantly openly defied the holy God and set up pagan altars all around their holy city. So the crowds rushed to meet him as the deliverer, the one who would free them from the chains of the oppressive Roman government, those pagan authorities, and to restore the glory of, of the nation of Israel as they thought it should be, some kind of military superpower in the ancient Near Eastern world. So as the people rush out, I'm, I'm sure they're, they're climbing over each other to get a glimpse of their conquering hero as he arrives. I can imagine the kids thinking, oh, here comes the, the conquering hero. I bet he's huge. I bet he's like 6'5". I bet his sword is the biggest sword ever. I bet his horse is just this massive war horse that's bigger and stronger and faster than any horse the Romans are going to have. They can't catch this guy. He's going to be the warrior who delivers us from the Romans. And then I wonder if the cheers died down a little bit as he actually approached the city. He wasn't on a war horse decorated for battle. He was riding on a little donkey. And his sword wasn't only small, it was non-existent. He was a man of peace, a lowly, humble, homeless man of peace coming into the city. I wonder if the kids' faces kind of went a little dark as they actually caught sight of their hero, Jesus. Isaiah had told us that the Messiah would have no form or majesty that we should look to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. This was not a war hero. This is not a warrior king coming to kick the Romans out once and for all. So how could this possibly be a triumph? Why do we call this a triumphal entry? Well, because triumph, in the sense of the Franklin rebels going to the state tournament, is really a puny view of triumph in the big picture. This is not that kind of triumph. Yes, the crowds were right to welcome Jesus as the king. They were right to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were right to spread out their palm branches and their cloaks and make way for the king, but they had no idea about the magnitude of the triumph that was about to occur only a few days later. A mere political overthrow of the Romans paled in comparison to the victory won on the cross of Calvary. And the great irony here is that these same crowds who, who were shouting Hosanna at this moment, a few days later would be the same crowds who were shouting crucify, 
crucify. And then Jesus, the one who they had hoped would usher in this new political military kingdom here on earth, the same Christ was, was beaten and made to carry his own cross up to a hill where he would be executed alongside common criminals. Surely the crowds had lost any hope of triumph at this point. But if they went back and they read the prophets, if they went back and read Zechariah, who said, Lo, your king comes to you triumphant, triumphant and victorious. Is he humble and riding on a donkey? This is a different kind of king, but he is triumphant even on a donkey. You see, Jesus is not the king of political takeovers. He's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of all nations. And he's the prince of peace who was coming to set up his kingdom around the universe, not just in Jerusalem. Our king has come. Palm Sunday is a day for us as God's people to celebrate. But we need to make sure we're celebrating for the right reasons, right? As our king who enters Jerusalem on a donkey is also the same king who comes to reign in our hearts as Lord of Lords. So where's the triumph in all of this for us today? Where's the sense of validation and that sweet taste of triumph that we love so much? Well, if the entrance into the city was triumphant, how much more triumphant was the exit from the city as the man of sorrows carried his cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull, to bear the sins of the world on his shoulders in order to make us right with the holy God. To gather Israel, he, he died for us. To gather you and me and all peoples under his gentle wing. As a mother hen, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've longed to gather you to me. He accomplishes that triumph on the cross. And then at the empty tomb, which we're going to celebrate together next week, he provides access to the Father through this forgiveness of sins that can only be offered by the perfect spotless lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice. We need to re-examine how we define triumph. Jesus says in, in Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's victory. That's triumph. Triumph is complete abandonment to the will of God, saying, here am I, send me, Lord, I'll do whatever you want. Have you set your face so that your will and your resolve to die for Christ and to give all that you are to him is so immovable to whatever it is that God has in store for you in this life? Or are you simply living for yourself, looking for little triumphs, looking for little victories and clinging desperately for control of your own life, buying into the illusion that you're in control? I read a great story last week about a pastor who was shaking hands with folks as they left church after the service. And one lady, a church member, said to him after the, the service, Pastor, please pray for me this week because the partners at the firm are meeting together to decide if I'm going to make partner or not. And I've worked really hard for this, so please pray that I get it because I really need it, really want it. The pastor said, my real job at that moment is to know that this promotion means too much to her, that she's never going to be satisfied, even if she does make partner. That the real source of her identity is her life in Christ. 
And that if she only prayed to see the sufficiency of Christ in her life, the all-surpassing sufficiency of Christ, then she could approach this vote about her status at work with much less anxiety. It's possible that not making partner will be better for her, for her restless heart, than getting what she so desperately wants. We have to learn to see triumph differently, don't we? We define triumph as God's people differently than the world defines triumph. That's the lesson of Palm Sunday. The final victory, the ultimate triumph, of course, is when Jesus returns to Jerusalem again, right? I said he went into the city for the, the last time in this age. But we as Christians profess hope that Christ is coming again to enter into the city one final time to make all things new to make all the wrongs right, to restore all the injustices, and to say enough, and to make everything new again. We get a picture of that in Revelation chapter 5 and Revelation 7, the new creation, when the great crowd gathers around the throne of Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain and who rose again. And they're singing, they're worshiping around the throne of the Lamb of God who is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And guess what the crowd has in their hands? That's right, a palm branch. The crowd, Revelation 7, 9, says this. After I looked, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. We're going to have a time of reflection and worship now. Our, our choir is going to lead us in a song of, of, of worship around the throne, proclaiming the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ, who alone is sufficient to give you what you need and what you desire, real triumph that lasts. The trophies that Franklin High has won, I went back recently, they're rusted, they're faded, they're not pretty, they're stored in an old shelf, you Franklin girls, right, know this, they're all some like little shelf in the back hallway somewhere. It's not impressive. And when your kids go to Franklin someday, they're not going to be impressed by those, right? Triumph comes through Jesus Christ. That's the Lamb who is worthy to receive all glory and all majesty and praise. Let's think about that. What are you holding on to today that you need to let go of? Have you set your face? Have you resolved to do the will of God in a, in a courageous way like Jesus Christ did? Imagine the great multitude around the throne singing, Worthy is the Lamb, as we hear this song together. Mm -hmm. 